You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones and I am thrilled to bring you the next special International Women's Day episode of our podcast. This episode, we're celebrating the Young Australians in International Affairs IWD initiatives for 2019, which included a week-long lineup of women writing for their Insights blog. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Charlotte Owens, who is a policy editor for Young Oz and wrote a cracking piece about female vulnerability in climate change. Charlotte offered great advice for people who are looking to get published, so stay tuned for that later in the episode. Another initiative from Young Oz on IWD was their list of 25 young women to watch in international affairs. The aim of the list is to shine a spotlight on some of the young Australian women making a name for themselves in government, academia, think tanks, the private sector and civil society across the broad horizon of international affairs. I spoke with Jean Du, the careers director at Young Oz, about how they formed the list and what's next. Hi, Jean. Thanks for joining the Aspie podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, um, and also especially thank you for talking to us um, on your walk home. Um, <laughs> um, it's nice to have a little bit of um, different ambience in the background. Now, I'm happy to provide. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Now, I did want to speak to you um, after the fantastic initiative from Young Australians in International Affairs, um, putting together the list of 2019's Young Women to Watch in International Affairs. Tell me about this list. Sure. Thank you for taking notice of it. It is something that we are extremely proud of here at Young Australians. And it is our inaugural list, so this is the first time we're running something like this. It is, um, as you guys would know, to commemorate International Women's Day. In terms of how it came about, honestly, I think it was just a really organic process. Our CEO, Mercedes Page, she spearheaded the whole thing. And as soon as she sort of mentioned sort of wanting to put something like this together, everyone was on board straight away and was really keen on the idea. She, um, and it kind of just rolled from there. Yeah, we really love the idea of women propping up women and also men propping up women (laughs) as well. It's great to see a little bit of diversity in the list in terms of, you know, the range of age as well as background and, and research focus. Was that something that was purposeful on the behalf of Young Oz? We are at Young Oz extremely conscious about wanting to be as inclusive as we can. And, um, and the list did happen organically this way. And I think it's a testament to how the wonderful range of backgrounds and ages and cultures and opinions that we get um, in Australia and how inclusive we are as well. Something that we're very proud of here. And so plans for the future, obviously this was the inaugural list. So, you know, outside of doing it again, are, are you thinking of adding to the to the list, broadening it out, adding in some awards? Like what's the future? So yeah, definitely something we want to maintain for the future, um, especially to commemorate International Women's Day. So it very well could be um, an annual occurrence. In terms of expanding on this list, we definitely want um, to reach out so that more people can be aware of this opportunity and just give the space to be able to nominate as many people from as wide a background as we can. It's honestly opened so many doors, so we're really excited to see where this takes us. I was especially excited to see three of my colleagues, Hannah, Akriti and Elise, make the inaugural list. We recently sat down to chat about their research and advice they have for their younger selves. 
So joining me now is Hannah, Elise and Akriti. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks Thank for having us. <laughs> Um, and you're joining me because you were recently named um, in 2019's Young Women to Watching International Affairs list. So congratulations. And I just was uh, interested in your initial reactions on making that list. I'll start with you, Hannah. Um, initial reactions. Uh, I was shocked, to be honest. I d- it definitely wasn't something I was expecting. Um, I think, you know, you do this kind of work and a lot of research you do is behind the scenes. Um, and helping things run smoothly and, you know, every now and then you get to sort of celebrate and publish a report and it's, yeah, it's really quite nice to sometimes have somebody peek up and uh, and recognise that work. Akriti, looks like you want to touch on that as well, <laughs> your reaction? Um, no, I think I share Hannah's sentiments here because um, this was completely unexpected. I'd also like to say that it, it felt good at the end of the day. It felt as if the work that I did or that I do matters to people and it's making a difference. Elise, anything to add? I echo Hannah and Akriti. It was a big surprise. It came out of the blue a little bit. But yeah, it's an honour, particularly considering um, some of the other women who are on the list. There's some very, very impressive people there. Well, congratulations again. And uh, talking about the work that you do it's important and matters <laughs> can you run me through what exactly it is that you focus on and what makes you passionate about your role so right now I'm working with um, uh, the defense and strategy team here at ASPE personally interested in Indian foreign policy and Indo-Pacific security I've done a bit of work on these issues in the past but uh, right now I'm uh, really interested in how India-China relations are playing out mm. in the Indo-Pacific and where Australia stands in this it's a fascinating time to be studying Indian foreign policy particularly at this time in Australia when India's uh, gaining so much importance and um, uh, attention from the strategic circle here. Mm, and because it's, it's not an issue that I'm personally very well across, but is the idea that China is starting to see India as a, a competitor? China's relations with India are... Um, complicated on, on several fronts and I could go on talking about it if you want <laughs> me to. Uh, gradually I, I think um, Australians are trying to un, uh, you know beginning to appreciate the scope of India's issues with China. And so Elise for you what's your research area? So I've sort of recently joined the cyber team here at ASPIC and it's been a really interesting and rewarding experience even in the short time that I've been here because it's it's such a pleasure to be able to spend time digging into a subject that I'm really passionate about and mm. I'm really really interested in cyber because it will transform our society at every single level from the individual to the to the community to nation states to international relations and I think it's a really fascinating time to be working in this field because we are still so early in the development of this technology um, and there are so many new emerging opportunities also so many new emerging threats. Cyber I guess as you said it, it's growing and, and affecting every aspect of our society and in ways that I didn't never even thought about before so I um, had the pleasure to uh, see Gay Brotman speak on International Women's Day and she touched on a topic of you know the internet of things Mm. which again I will caveat I understand very poorly Um, but just in terms of connecting it to getting more women working in cyber so they can ask critical questions about things like the internet of things because that affects women in very specific ways in instances of gender-based violence and um, domestic violence and and controlling women. Absolutely so I actually looked at this um, years before I started at ASPE back in 2015 I started looking at who was doing research on um, the internet of things and domestic violence and at Mm. the time I couldn't find anyone Mm. I, I and I looked really hard yeah. um, trying, to, trying to find someone who was working specifically on that issue and I couldn't find anyone. It started to get some more attention now. I think the thing is technology is so utterly pervasive in our society but in ways that we don't necessarily notice until it goes terribly wrong, mm. um, which is why this is such an interesting role to be in. Yeah. 
And Hannah, for you, what is your passion research at ASPE? What's your... So I'm a researcher, like Elise, at the uh, International Cyber Policy Centre. Um, I've been there about a year now and, I mean, as we mentioned, cyber has such a broad remit. It cuts across so many different issues day to day. I mean, my days look quite different. I um, go from some days looking at dark web and, and criminal networks and drug networks on the dark web through to I just finished uh, publishing a chapter looking at the rise of counter-violent extremism um, and counter-terrorism uh, operations online. Uh, mm. So, I mean, there really is quite a, a broad range of work that we do focus on in the centre. Probably my particular favourite at the moment would definitely be the dark work, um, mm. the dark web work. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely got that sort of passion project spot for me. Mm. And there's a few things about that I wanted to touch on. Um, so obviously the recent events in Christchurch, a lot of the commentary has been about um, the role of social media in that. I mean, did you have any thoughts on that as that unravelled? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I guess the events in Christchurch really highlight uh, sort of that role that uh, technology is playing in being able to create an echo chamber um, for violent extremism and to really amplify uh, voices um, and radicalise people in a way that we really haven't seen before. Mm. Um and people can be radicalised um, online with very little uh, sort of input from the outside world that creates this echo chamber-like effect. And, you know, previously uh, terrorism has been framed in the way of looking at uh, religious violent extremism. Mm. Um, and now we're starting to see far more uh, right-wing terrorist um, events taking place like the ones in Christchurch. Mm. And it really sort of puts in perspective that question of whether cyberspace and social media is really a question of um, that public square of debate mm. or whether the social contract that exists in society should also stretch into cyberspace mm. um, and whether, you know, really should there be some questions as to what is allowable on that platform and what should be banned or uh, moderated. Mm. It was fantastic to see you make the list. Um, I get the sense that part of this initiative is to help celebrate women working in this field and because there seems to be less women than men working in this field and, and there might be some gendered aspects of working in, you know, defence and security and policy and think tanks. What advice would you give to women who are just starting to think about their careers and what they want to do and if they want to get into this space? I guess key advice that I would give, and I mean, if I was to give advice to myself, you know, five years, ten years ago, would be start to say yes to opportunities. Mm. Um, quite often we get these opportunities that pass us by because we think about all of the things that stand in our way from taking them. Um, but some of the best things that I've sort of come across in my life um, have just been sort of these split-second decisions of like, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. I'm going to actually raise my voice because I have a voice. Something that I um, will hear later in the show from Charlotte from Young Australians in International Affairs, part of her advice was accepting that you're probably going to get told no. Um, but that shouldn't stop you from trying things and, and approaching people. And um, it's something that I myself am still learning that, you know, it's okay that I'm going to fail at things or I'm going to be told no. So it's really great advice. I'm McCready. Exactly. Um, I think um, I go through some of uh, those feelings even today. And when I'm writing something, um, you know, now I'm much better at it and um, I feel much more confident, you know, sending my writings to people. But mm. five years ago, I would shy away from uh, even sharing uh, my writing or thinking that it's not good enough. Now I know better. Best advice is never to underestimate yourself. Also to just keep writing. You know, you, you're only going to improve with time. And Elise, I might ask you specifically about 
as well as your advice generally, but your advice about writing um, women wanting to publish more um, or to just get their foot in the door of publishing articles, what would your advice be? Just have a crack. What's the worst that can happen? If the worst mm. that can happen is that they say no or they say you're not good enough, you say okay, you take it back, you try again. Mm. My background is sort of as a, as a freelance journalist as well mm. as as a researcher. Feedback that I've heard from different editors is that they get a lot more pictures from men than from women, a lot mm. more freelance pictures from men than from women. Mm. Um, and I think there are definitely some gendered aspects there. Don't feel like you're not good enough, just have a crack. The other thing that I would really recommend is reaching out to people. So like if you if you see someone whose work you admire or if you see someone or if um, you know you, you come across someone who you think you have an opportunity to learn from, I've certainly made the effort to get in touch with a lot of people and made a lot of really interesting connections that way mm -hmm. um, and learned a lot of really valuable, valuable lessons and valuable experiences. Um, and my experience has been that people are really generous, particularly if you sort of approach them the, the right way mm -hmm. <laughs> about sort of sharing their expertise and their time. And I, I guess I will touch on that mentoring aspect. Do you, have you had a mentor or mentors in your career so far and, and how did you go about, I guess, establishing that relationship? So I, I've had a number of mentors throughout um, my career, even though it is definitely in the early stages. One who stands out um, probably above the rest was uh, one of my lecturers in university. Um, and I was doing my master's course and I really stumbled upon him and he sort of took me under his wing and showed me what the industry was like. And I must say, like, the most valuable thing I learned from him was, apart from saying yes to opportunities, was learning how to fail well. You're going to fail with some things, that's okay, but picking yourself back up and learning lessons of why didn't it work this time, okay, mm -hmm. let's give it another go. Yeah, I think the life lessons I learned from my mentors over over the years um, have been mm. most valuable lessons. They've helped me to grow as a person mm. uh, more than anything else. A couple of my mentors in the early stages of my career, they helped me through some very challenging personal times. And um, they were extremely humble. Mm -hmm. uh, they were extremely generous with their time and extremely compassionate. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that I really benefited from and I admire and appreciate and going forward those are the the attributes that I would like to carry forward into my career and you mm. know imbibe those personal values. Fantastic. Mm. Elise? I think the important things to remember is to think about what you can give back as well as what you can get from other people. It shouldn't be sort of a, a one-way street where you only get in touch with them when you need something or sort of mm. you're always demanding things. It should be sort of about building up professional relationships, personal relationships with people who you have a lot of, who you basically have a lot of a lot in common with, get along with. And I think the other thing to be aware of is that not to sort of feel like you are not experienced enough to be a mentor to other people coming up behind you, like sort mm. of younger people. Because mm. um, I think there's sort of this tendency, particularly for relatively early career women, to think, well, I, I can't be a mentor because I don't know enough. Mm. And I don't think that's true. I think sort of um, everybody's got something to share. Mm. And so I think that's important as well. And I think you learn a lot through being a mentor yeah. as well as being a mentee. Yes, I, I've noticed that in our speed mentoring series is that I think there's definitely scope to have a, a more diverse range of mentors in, in every capacity, but specifically as well as like career development, as well as a lot of our mentors say, I actually learned more than I probably dispensed advice tonight. Yeah, so. and I, I, think, I think also the sort of there's different kinds of mentors. So there's mm. sort of people who can teach you a lot about the, the technical elements of your work. Yeah. And then there are people who can teach you a lot about, for example, emotional intelligence in the workplace or people who can teach you a lot about work-life balance. Or, yes. You know, you can, you can learn a lot of different skills from a lot of different people. I think 
think I really need to talk to someone about work-life balance. <laughs> so if you're listening to this podcast, mentor me. Um, I, I will finish up with what current strategic issue keeps you up at night? One of the things that I'm really now worried about is the scope of India's defence modernisation and how that's going. Mm-hmm. I think India is uh, drastically needs to modernise its uh, defence forces. And um, mm-hmm. so that is one aspect that I'm looking at. Other than that, I think um, I'm really interested in what's happening in the Indian Ocean region mm-hmm. um, going forward in the next 10 years, how India is going to be able to project power to maintain its great power ambitions in mm-hmm. the Indian Ocean region and the, in the wider Indo-Pacific. Quick plug to ASPE's latest Indian Ocean report. We'll have a link in the description. Hannah? <laughs> Um, strategic issues that I'm concerned about at the moment. It's definitely a few to pick from. Look, one that sort of overshadows the rest, I, I do work in cyber um, on a daily basis. The amount of personal data that's being uploaded without any concern of where that goes or what sort of footprint is leaving, um, mm. being left behind. I read an article the other day that was looking at DNA databases and people uploading DNA to the DNA databases and there was just a small sort of like um, stat that was put in there that said there was approximately about 60% of the US population had uploaded their DNA to a database. Mm. And because it was such a large amount of um, data that had been uploaded, they had estimated they would be able to guess the genetic patterns of the rest of the 40% of the population. So it's starting to become an issue of not necessarily even being able to retreat from the internet and take control of your own data. Um, because of other people's decisions, you're now being exposed and that decision is being taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's enough discussion around personal data control or even law that we saw that came out in Germany, the right to be forgotten, whether possibly we should be focusing a little bit more on that. Interesting. Elise? I have sort of a, a similar concern to Hannah in, in terms of the, the, the tendency to implement technologies before we fully understand what the risks are. Mm. Um, so I'd give a, a different example in terms of class failure with autonomous vehicles, for example. Mm. So there's a lot of talk about how autonomous vehicles will reduce the risk of car crashes because human beings are, are much more likely to crash cars than machines are. But at the same time, as you're sort of um, reducing that risk of individual crashes, you're creating um, a potentially the, the risk of a, of a system failure where where, you know, instead of having one car crash, you have 100,000 cars crash at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so, so I worry about sort of that increasing interconnectedness, the rush to make everything, quote unquote, smart, to connect everything to the internet and the, the risk that we're creating there for catastrophic failures. Yep. Thank you again for all of your time enjoying the podcast. I certainly understand why you've all made the list. Um, so once again, congratulations and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank thanks you. Thanks for Often, the debates and discourse around defence, security and foreign policy are dominated by male voices. It was refreshing to see a young organisation take leadership in this area and offer a week-long lineup of women writers. We're about to hear from Elliot Brennan, Director of Publications at Young Oz and Communications Officer at the United States Studies Centre, about the process and thinking behind this idea. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Renee. So, Elliot, I did want to talk to you because Young Australians in International Affairs, uh, to coincide with your list of those fabulous 25 um, young women to watch in International Affairs, you also had a week-long lineup of female writers on your Insights blog, and I believe you're the person responsible for that. So, first of all, congratulations. And I was interested because normally you see that blogs tend to opt for all-women lineups for just the day on 8th of March, marking International Women's Day but you managed to get a week's worth of content. Were you planning for just the day initially? Um, Yeah, actually we were. So Mercedes and I were sort of talking about 
you know, getting a really strong lineup for that day. But really early in the process, I realized that we were feeling much more than our usual quota for, you know, a couple of days. And so I sort of had this discussion with her, hey, let's see if we can stretch this out over a week. Even then, we well exceeded our usual publishing frequency for a week. Um, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of buzz around it, and people were just really, really keen to contribute. And so how many pieces did you end up publishing over the week? Um, I think we had 12, which um, I think in this context, it's important to remember we're a volunteer organisation. So usually in a week, we'll publish you know, two to three. So it was really far exceeding um, what we usually do. And I mean, what was the process for garnering that content? I mean, were the writers recommended to you or is this just a case of um, young Australians having a really fantastic network to begin with? It's a mix, right? As soon as I started putting this list together, I, I went to my USSC colleague, Matilda Stewart, and I asked if she wanted to write something on the new women in the US Congress. I went to an old colleague who now works at One, One Million Women, Emily Contador Kelsell for a piece on the women leading the fight against climate change. In publishing generally, you have to be flexible and have somewhat of a coherent network that includes a lot of writers. But in my mind, the most important nodes in that network aren't actually the writers, it's those people who can point you towards writers. Mm. Early in the process, I reached out to contacts at Lowy and Aspie and around the usual traps for any names that might be interested in, in contributing. That's where my expectations were exceeded. And so what I think a lot of publishers may not realise is that women in this field have really been very active in lifting each other up. Mm. There are great resources like Aspie's Women in Defence and Security Network and the Australian Women in IR Google group. Mm. Now, obviously, I'm not a member of either of those, but just knowing one person who is is enough to be able to draw on the wonderful well of talent that they, they foster. So you do often hear that, oh, it's really hard to get women to write. Um, you know, I think a lot of publishers tend to point to lower rates of, of women working in these fields and writing in these fields to begin with. Um, but it sounds like it was quite easy to, for you. I, I really think it's just as simple as asking the question. There's those groups I mentioned before. They're ready-made networks. And mm. I think publishers really just need to be bold enough to say hey, I'm looking for a writer on X subject. Do you know anyone? And I mean, time and time again in this role, I've come across unpublished women whose writing and authority match those of the loudest in the business. And I mean, I, I think that's part of the role that young Australians in international affairs has to play to publish these newcomers. Hmm. But I think there's a lot of scope for the industry to take more chances. I can say from experience that in the nine months or so that I've been with young Australians, I've yet to be burnt by taking a chance on someone. And obviously there is an editorial process. So if something's not up to standard, the process can take care of it. So um, I think it's worth taking the risk for you're wanting to publish an unknown voice. Another thing that you often hear from publishers is that in, in our fields respectively, so things on foreign policy and defence and security topics, women might be more inclined to write on the gendered perspective or women, peace and security um, rather than broader security topics. Did you find any issues with getting a diverse range of topics to write about? When I was deciding which piece should kick off the week, um, I went with an article by my US studies colleague Freya Zemek on the economic realities of Australia's relationship with China. Mm. Um, ostensibly, it has nothing to do with International Women's Day or even gender. 
Um, but it's a topic area where the convergence of economics and IR um, that's just so dominated by a particular set of voices. Mm. And that set rarely features the voice of a young woman in the field. But anyone who reads that piece will see that it should. Mm. And again, I think it's just about asking the question. Young Australians in International Affairs is very involved with a lot of unis around the country. And there are just so many fantastic up-and-coming women who are chomping at the bit to get involved. I think it's the role of publishers to take that chance because they're going to be rewarded with insightful and original angles. Mm. Well, congratulations to you, Elliot, and the team at Young Australians in International Affairs. It was a fantastic lineup, and I'm looking forward to um, more of that in the future. Thank you for your time. No worries, Renee. Thank you so much. And a quick side note, Elliot also produces the 2020 Vision podcast, so if you're a US politics nerd like me, check it out. We'll have a link in the description. Finally, I spoke with Charlotte Owens, Administrative Officer at the Sydney Environment Institute and Policy Editor for Young Oz. We spoke about climate change, getting published and writing outside of your comfort zone. Hi, Charlotte. Welcome to the Aspie podcast. Hi, thanks for having me here. So I wanted to talk to you because you wrote a fantastic piece for the Young Australians in International Affairs Insights blog. You wrote about female vulnerability Mm -hmm. in climate change. I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit more about your piece. Yeah, sure. I kind of wanted to look at how climate change doesn't affect everyone in the same way. Often we look as women as victims in a lot of international relations events. Mm -hmm. And I found myself thinking that as well. And how women are often affected in how their socioeconomic status, uh, where they live. And my work currently at the Sydney Environment Institute angled me really well in that sense. So my piece was really looking at how there's an unequal suffering in climate change and women are almost always affected differently. Mm-hmm. And so does that differ when you mentioned, you know, women are often seen as women as victims in international affairs. Mm-hmm. Can you just draw on that point a little bit more in terms of when it comes to climate change, are women not more broadly victims of climate change or is it that women can have a more empowering role? Just if you can touch on that point a bit more. Yeah, sure. There's definitely opportunities for women to be more empowered and that's kind of what this third wave of uh, intersectional feminism is. And women in the sense that they're more affected by climate change, I Mm. think they are, and there's been reports on this by the Brookings Institute and Pew Research Centre that so in post-disaster situations, women receive support last which is just really interesting from a gender bias perspective, but also because they have less access to housing from other issues because they're less likely to be working. So there's opportunities for women to be more empowered, but I think it's important to realise that when we talk about climate change really broadly, that's a really important topic, people are affected differently. Mm. Um, In the same way that Pacific Islanders are affected differently to someone living on a coastal region in Sydney. They're both affected just differently. Yeah. And talking about um, a group that is going to be affected quite significantly by climate change, um, I was interested in your thoughts on the climate change strikes that happened um, just last Friday that seems to be initiated mostly by, you know, a younger generation of people. What were your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. I thought it was really fantastic, to be honest. I actually took part in the strike from the University of Sydney contingent. We joined on to the student march. Mm. I think it's incredible. And just from speaking to people that were there, they're people mostly under the age of 18. They can't have a voice in policy, really, because they can't vote yet. So they're not choosing who who their leaders are. And just the fact that they felt they could have enough support and they were mobilised to go out there was fantastic. Mm. Uh, It was really good. There were so many people 
and many different types of people. So there were families, there were office workers, there were five-year-olds next to us, and then there were also young adults who just wanted to show their solidarity with the movement and uh, showcase that people are angry about it, really, that Mm. change needs to happen and it needs to happen now. Yeah. Mm. And I think some of the negative commentary um, leading up to it seemed to try and peg these groups Mm. of of people as delinquents trying to skive off um, school for the day. But your sense on the ground was very much that it was a large, diverse group of people who were very much taking the issue quite seriously. Yeah, I think. And the point about... um, students missing school was really interesting because there were comments from both sides like Labor, Liberal, Greens, actually not so much the Greens but um just stating that you know why couldn't it be held on a weekend or why couldn't it be held after school but I think it's entirely missing the point. The point was that people wanted to protest as part of a, a broader international movement. There were strikes in London, across Sweden, in America, New Zealand. Yeah I actually found it quite comical to just See that the first reaction to a big, massive strike like this was to say, oh, why isn't it on a Sunday? I think that's just, it just highlights how disengaged people are from it, to be honest. As I mentioned before, your blog was part of the Young Australians in International Affairs series um, where they got, I guess, a week's worth of content um, for to celebrate International Women's Day that was written um, entirely by women. What was your reaction to, I guess, being a part of that and, and the importance of being a part of that mm. series? Well, I thought it was a really good initiative, to be honest. My boss, Elliot, came up with the idea, said, you know, I thought it would be really good if we can just get a week's worth of content to showcase that women are vocal and they are engaged. Mm. And I think it underscores the assumption that women can only have an input on some issues. Mm. So women will always be asked about feminism. Mm. But just being talk- talking about anything um, in the international relations sphere is really important and it shows that women are easily accessible, that it, it wasn't hard to find these people to write for us. Mm. Um I think it's one of the best things the organisation has done and it's made them really relevant as well in the field. Mm. And have you had, as a younger and emerging woman, wanting to contribute to debates, um, whether they're around climate change or other issues in international affairs? I mean, what has your experience been so far in trying to get things published? It's been a bit all over the place, but I had a really good opportunity when I was in my first year of my undergrad, I met a really good friend who actually happened to publish in the same series we're talking about um, in my university course. And she told me that you could do a six-week internship writing articles for the Organisation for World Peace. Mm. Um, you applied online. You had a Skype interview. It's a Canadian-based organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of my six-week internship, I had to write an article on something that was happening every week with a peace-based lens. So always, you know, um, climate change, for for example, how can that impact peace and security abroad? Mm. So that was my first experience publishing uh, when I was 18. Mm. Um, And I read back on my articles and they're not some of my finest work, but it was just a really good chance to be involved in something like that and being published online was really, really exciting. I've also done some work for Enid Network, which is a feminist based organization it wasn't anything to do with the policy field but I had to write with a different kind of angle so it was more conversational Mm. um found that I really enjoyed that growth that it gave me but Mm. it wasn't exactly angled to what I'm best at which I think I'm better at writing you know essay types and Mm. I'm a bit more awkward when it comes to conversation 
educational writing. So I've had those two experiences um, and then with um, Young Australians and International Affairs as well. And so would your advice be for, um, you know, people wanting to uh, contribute to discourse and, and get a start in getting pieces published, would your advice be to approach as many people as possible, whether they be in your field or not, to, I guess, get a range of experience in style mm. as well as content? Yeah, well, I think that was really good for my personal development and I can't speak for everyone. But yeah, I think my advice would be just to seek opportunities. And that sounds so cliche, but you know, you'll knock on doors 10 times and you won't get answers for a lot of them, let be, let alone be successful for a lot of them. So, yeah, being open just to any experience of writing if you do want to write. Um, if you're at university, there are heaps of publications you can get involved with. Also, if you're talking to like-minded people, you'll often find opportunities through them. Uh, as with my friend who recommended my first internship, I mean, if, if I didn't have that, I honestly wouldn't have known that you could publish like that um, mm, mm. without being in an institution. And I, I was fresh out of high school. It was a perspective that not everyone had, for sure, because I wasn't experienced in anything. But just putting yourself out there, cold emailing, cold calling people, saying, look, I have this pitch for this or I'm available to write for this. What opportunities do you have? And also realising that within that, 99% of the time it's unpaid work and you have to be happy with that because that's how you get the exposure. Yeah. And I know that's something that's come up a lot in our, um, we have speed mentoring series with our Women in Defence and Security Network. And a lot of mm -hmm. um, advice that comes from that is, is being okay with, with failure, um, especially when it comes to approaching yeah. people because, and in so much of the advice is just be completely bold and shameless when it does come to approaching people um, and be okay with the fact that you, you mm. might get told no a lot, but when you you get that yes it's, yeah. it's that progress so I guess is that something that you would agree with oh definitely yeah you have to accept the feedback with a grain of salt but also take it quite seriously like they know what they're talking about and mm. maybe what your, your writing style doesn't fit with their organization and their message mm. um but we're so lucky now that there are even more organizations you can talk to or there are more ways to be involved than traditionally speaking as in you can write your own blog post and have your own blog if that's the way you want to get your message out. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess if there was something that you could tell, you know, your 18-year-old self is just starting that writing for the first time. I wish I got started earlier. Yeah, uh, wow. It took me a while to be confident. I mean, I was only 18, but I thought, you know, I'm not good enough at this. I'm not intelligent enough. I just finished high school. Don't have a uni degree, let alone a postgrad and all of this kind of stuff. Because you read things online and you forget that, someone had to start like that. Mm. So I wish I just started earlier, to be honest. That's any advice that I would give to someone, regardless of if it's in the policy writing field or anything. You'll never know unless you do it sooner. Mm. And I guess the other thing for you know, any listeners is to remember that um, your experience, if it's even if you have a small amount of experience, the perspective that you have of where you are in life is is mm -hmm. valuable and interesting and that, you know, we can't always have the exact same voices talking about policy and talking about issues um, mm -hmm. because your perspective might not get covered and you have something unique to share. Yeah. So um, if you're exactly if you're listening, just get writing. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> um, and so I guess for you, I mean, it's climate change um is that your primary focus going forward is that what you like hope um, to be working on for the long term I'm actually not sure it's kind of a subject that's come up a bit later than others I've always been really interested in human rights 
and women's activism. But yeah, I did some really cool subjects in my last year of my undergrad that kind of angled me more towards um, environmentalism. I'm currently doing my Master of International Security. So I really enjoy looking at climate change and what's happening to the ecosystem from a security perspective. Mm. So looking at climate migration or water resources and water wars, basically um, Mm. how that can unfold in the future. So yeah, it definitely wasn't on the cards for a long time, but I'm really enjoying it now. And it's so prevalent. I mean, it's an issue that literally affects everyone. It's um, not as alienating, which is both a good and a bad thing not as alienating as women's rights, which you still receive a lot of backlash from. You receive backlash from climate change and your views on that, but it's literally something that everyone can experience and is experiencing now. Yeah, Yeah. and there's also just a certain point of no return. It's definitely um, one to be talking about now. Yeah, for sure. A long time ago. So, Charlotte, for someone who is looking for um, advice from young Australians in international affairs, whether how to get involved with Young Oz or just other opportunities, I mean, what what can you tell them? Actually, one of the best things about Young Australians in international affairs is that we have this tab on our website called Jobs, Opportunities um, and Careers Board. If you click on that, there are heaps of opportunities for unpaid and paid work so that's how people find out about internships where you can write any good um, options overseas with the UN that would just be a really good sounding board um, from the beginning and we also publish a annual careers guide which is a phenomenal document just going through all the opportunities in Australia because that's often overlooked on other websites. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that tab uh, in our description. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. And we look forward to um, following your contributions to young Australians and other places um, going forward. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Renee. It was lovely speaking to you. And you. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know and leave us a comment or review. We'll be back next week with our regular program.